Today we're going to be talking about part four in our misery mini-series, where Paul's going to take a little visit to Annie's library. Yeah, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Welcome to First Time Through. New Eyes on Castle Rock. With Kim Payne. And Otto Mullins. So, we left off with the rain coming and the things changing, but we're going to talk about from the 8th of April, so we finally know exactly what day it is. Oh yeah, that's a good point. But I wonder too, because it says from the 8th of April. So um, now he really does legitimately know exactly what day it is. Yep, yep, yep. A lot of this just from here on just is some stream of consciousness, Mm -hmm. him worrying about the car seeing that it's the next day just kind of like losing track of the days again just because it's con- consistently the same thing he noted with deepening misgivings that there were red marks like welts on her cheeks and arms he also saw gooey splatters of food on the house cut this is when she's really starting to so i know that Spiral she's had the first time in the pa- parlor and it was just kind of unkempt and mm-hmm. untidy and now it's not only in the parlor it's on her so how bad is it in the other room that she's tracking it with her? Mm-hmm. Um, Annie, she stopped, not turning around. She looked bigger that way with her shoulders rounding the pink house coat, her hair like some battered helmet. She looked like a pilt-down woman staring out of her cave. Annie, are you all right? No, she said indifferently and turned around. Chilling. Like, that's... Because not that's only cool. is she not okay, Oof. she knows she's, she's not, not okay. She's not okay, and she doesn't seem to be trying to do anything about it. Yeah. Just walks out, clicks the door. Yeah. Oof. Well, and, and then he's, like, uh, remembering some notes on mental illness that he had taken when for his first misery book, uh, when a manic-depressive personality begins to slide deeply into a depressive period, one symptom may be that he or she may exhibit is acts of self-punishment, slapping, punching, pinching, burning oneself with cigarette butts, etc. Makes a big point to notice the welt and everything, and then also recalls that. Mm -hmm. So we know that Annie is self-harming. We know that she's not taking care of herself. We know that it's raining, and he made a point to tell us that. Not only is the rain a strong metaphor for the changes of his addiction through, you know, the cocaine, cocaine addiction, but it's also actively changing her environment and her mood in the story as well yep. it's just a really good use of the literary device to like change and like be a plot device while also like telling something to the audience about the character itself absolutely he was suddenly very scared at this point he is effectively self-mobile you know uh he talks about that he can get in his chair by himself and get himself back in the bed. He rolled over to the window and picked up the manuscript and started working. You know, he's just he's just going to keep plugging away because he's got to maintain that normalcy. It, it, like I think like what's too fun, like I don't know if it's fun. It's interesting though that he's even aware that this is like an escape for him. Like, he's actively like, I could go and write and not have to think about any of this anymore, so I'm going to do that. To the point where eventually Annie comes in and she says, well, if you can get into the chair all by yourself, Paul, then I think you can fill your own effing ends. But she doesn't say effing. She actually Mm -hmm. says the F word, which that's the first time she swears. She's 
oh man, it's just really, really an important moment. And it's such a small chapter. It's literally like a page and a half at most. And then the next thing you know, like everything has changed. He was too flabbergasted to do anything else. She's just slid from like doting, devoted fan into like jilted caretaker. Yeah, in and the in this moments. horrible, horrible depression, and he oh. knows that it's only going to get worse from here. Oh yeah, she's not taking care of herself. How could she possibly be taking care of him? Help him at all? Right. Whatever had been wrong with her this morning was, was worse, worse tonight. I was just reading that line as worse. well. This was Annie, the real Annie, the inside Annie. Oh, and this is the first time she tells us about the rats in the basement, mm-hmm. in the cellar. Excuse me. I put on traps. I have to. I smear the trip pipes with baking grease. So, uh, Blank's for holding the rat in the air, a perfect case of waxy catatonia. So, she's sitting here talking about all these rats, literally has a dead one in her hand, is standing there talking to him about the rats, and then just stops talking, moving, blinking, almost breathing, it seems. For three actual minutes, just staring at him with this dead rat while it's raining. I like to imagine there's like thunder and lightning and it's just. Well, and it's not dead. It's not dead. Ah, what? The rat squeaked and struggled. Oh, man. And realized that that it actually believed things could get no worse. Untrue. (laughs) Untrue. Then she kills it. I think this is really interesting, too, because, I mean, you see a lot of media will portray manic, sociopathic people as people that have no emotions about the things that they're doing to these people. But, I mean, like, give us a little human moment with Annie that, like, she obviously isn't doing this because, well, she's doing it because of power and control. But there's also this moment, like, these, these, this idea of pity, this yeah. idea of, like, I'm saving you, you're welcome. And I think that's really telling about her personality and like what has something happened to her. Mm-hmm. And we gotta find out soon. And I think it's really coming to that like that cathartic moment where we gotta find out what's happening soon. Right. Right. Oh, Paul pressed the heel of a palm against his wincing mouth, and he's just sitting here trying to not uh not vomit. Yeah. I mean, this has gotta be gross. So she's holding a rat trap. There's a rat in it with a broken back, squirming and squealing and making all ratty noises. And she does the most baller move in the history of capture. And she just crushes the rat with her fist to the point where the pulp watches the bones break and then all of the guts come through her fingers. And then she says, now it's at peace. I'll get my gun, Paul, shall I? Maybe the next world is better for rats and people both. Not that there's much difference between the two. So she willingly just took like the life of someone else thinking that she was helping them get to a better place. And now she's like, we're both in pretty bad spots, aren't we, Paul? I'm sure you're not that happy. I'm definitely not happy. Why don't we just like see what's going on elsewhere? So, of course, Paul's reaction is, wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. I want to finish this book. I want to finish your book. He is so invested in this story now. And that self-preservation that he's like, no, no, no. Don't kill either of us. Let me finish this book. It's so immediate, too, and it's such a clever, like, it's the thing that's connected them. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that they both want. 
And it's the only thing that in this moment, we already know how deeply misery, the character, the novel, the story affects Annie because she literally had to go to the laughing place last time and just get away from everything. So we know that like this is going to hit at least some emotional beat. And I think this is just like, I was reading through this like just like really quick again, and I just love how much Paul thinks between the like four words he says, and then he's like, "Here's every thought I've had in the last five seconds about why I said those four words," and then he's like, "I'm closer to death than I've ever been in my life because she means it. The B means it. She is very actively the closest she's been to killing him right now. Yes, actively homicidal and suicidal right now." And he knows he is in really bad, a really, really bad place. She says, misery, yes. I agree that the world is a pretty crappy place most of the time, he said, and then added inanely, especially when it rains. She tells him, she goes, you don't even know what pain is. You don't have the slightest idea, Paul. No, I suppose not, not compared to you. That's right, but I want to finish this book. I like to see how it all turns out. He's just immediately with that sense of self-preservation, like we've been talking about. He's very, very, very much wants to be alive. He does. And, and, I, and the book is his, it's his his um, life preserver. Look it's at it. his stability in all of this insanity. It's his normalcy. He's a writer. First and foremost, that's what he does. I suddenly had a real big sense of wave of sadness because it made me immediately think of Stephen and his cocaine addiction. If we assume Paul is Steve, he actively wants to stay alive. But if and if we assume Annie is the cocaine addiction, Annie actively wants to not be alive herself, but also not have him alive. Wants to kill him. It doesn't want to exist. And whenever he takes cocaine, he probably feels worse and guiltier about it. But at the same time, he also doesn't want to die. And he also really wants to feel good by, like, you know, getting out in the mountains and getting drunk and driving and feeling the highs of the cocaine. But it sucks that there's so many repercussions. Right, right. And, I mean, he's got kids at home and a wife. And, I mean, he's got real-life responsibilities. And that's got to be weighing on him and knowing that it's it's to the point now that he's got to make some decisions about this addiction and he has got to make some decisions about getting well or getting it all getting it over with mm-hmm. he's got to actively choose if he wants to get better now yeah is he just gonna sit here in the bed and let annie win and let annie kill him or is he going to make the more difficult choice to get better and to persevere that's oof, oof, oof. Good job, Steve. We're out here telling you you did a good job today. He immediately does the best thing he probably could do, which is related back to her childhood, which I feel like he's just really starting to realize, like, those uh, chapter plays that she's already brought up are the most, like, the safest she's ever been. So he immediately is like, what about the Uncle Remus stories? Do you remember where you told me about the uh, the laughing place and all these things? And they start talking about the laughing place and what she does. And how far away it is. Uh, and she just screams. And then... How long will you be gone, Annie? I can't tell. I brought you pills. You'll be alright. Take two every six hours. Or six every four hours. Or all of them at once. 
the last time she left, his first thought was, what about the pills? Mm -hmm. Now he's got the pills, but he's like, but what about the food? <laughs> it's never like, yeah, it's always like another thing. Yeah. You know, he knows. Ugh, it, it's such a needy, needy mm -hmm. hostage. What? <laughs> come on, Paul. Yeah. So she leaves, going to her laughing place. It all being her was like being with the angel of death. The motor was up, going to the laughing place. A thought struck him. Who said she didn't leave me anything to eat? He looked around the room and laughed even harder. He's talking about the rat. So in the empty house, Paul Sheldon's laughing place sounded like the padded cell of a madman. That makes sense. This man just went through a very life-scaring experience. Again. And again. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's his target audience right now for his jokes is himself. And he nailed it. It's a good joke. Really making it's a callback to the moment that he just had with Annie. And then he also has like the rat in the corner. It's a practical bit as well. 10 out of 10 jokes, Paul. Good job. I understand why you laughed that hard. But also, really scary moment for him to just be laughing like that. Like, how many like moments have you had where you're just so upset or angry or scared where you just start laughing uncomfortably? Yeah, it's definitely an uncomfortable laugh, but it's the, you know, I have to laugh, otherwise I'll cry moment. Because mm -hmm. um, this is, he is in a bad bad sorry place and she just left him again Oof. last time she was gone for 51 hours who knows how long she's going to be gone this time the advantage here is is that paul can now is at least somewhat mobile he can get himself in and out of the bed to his chair mm -hmm. so he's not going to be you know drinking his own urine this time you um, hope not, buddy. Come on. You're he, better than that. He knows how to pick the lock now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, he said two hours later, he finally he got his act together and, and decided that he was going to take care of it. So he picked the lock. and Okay, so he took all the pills he had cached under the mattress, wrapped in a Kleenex, tucked in his underwear, he meant to get out of it if he could. Rain or no rain. This is where he's like, I'm just going to roll chance. down the hill. <laughs> Sidewinder was downhill and the road would be slippery in the rain. It was darker than a mine shaft, but he meant to try it all the same. He hadn't lived the life of a hero or a saint, but he did not intend to, to die like an exotic bird in a zoo. Oof. It's just thinking about birds flying away freedom in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's a good simile for him. Like, you know, if he's trying to get out, get away from Sidewinder, this house is his zoo yeah so he starts to go he's in the parlor he notices uh everything is super gross the pepsi bottle looked as uh i thought this like line really got me i was like a mound of lime jello covered with a cracked glaze of dried whipped cream stood on top of the tv next to a two liter plastic bottle of pepsi and a gravy boat the pepsi bottle looked as big as the nose cone of a titan two rocket the amount of food in that same vicinity, all in that, like, on top of the TV, and those different, like, everything there is just like, wow. That is, uh, it's gotta be an overwhelming smell. Yes. It's gotta be just, she's okay to be there every day with it, too. Not only yeah. that, like, you know, I know from some of my own personal anxiety struggles that when I'm in a room or an area that's, cr like, even dirtier, it kind of makes it worse. 
So it's every day she's perpetuating it. She's adding to it. She's making it worse and worse and worse and worse until the point where she's now not there anymore. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's it's horrible and it's it's a vicious cycle. Now he knows that's what was all over her robe. And he said, and that's what was on her breath, remembering oh. from the early on the the stinking breath. And no and no silverware. In all of this, he said there's no silverware. So she's just eating this or drinking this or whatever with her hands or penguins sitting on the block lies mentioned again an important little moment it's got to be like in a really prominent place in the parlor you know just like super or it's bigger than it i think it is in my head right or it's one of the you know it's it's featured in a little vignette or whatever but whatever it is for some reason that penguin keeps Mm -hmm. drawing his attention but in the midst of all of the mess and all of the gross and all of the everything, he sees her scrapbook, Memory Lane. Memory Lane. So he rolls across the room. On the right, a wide, short hallway that went down to the front door. You know, he could just keep going. So he rolls to the door. He thought if there was going to be a way out for him, tied to the chair as it was, it would be by the way of the kitchen door, the one Annie used when she went out to feed the animals, and the one she galloped from when Mr. Rancho Rancho Grande showed up. But he ought to check this one. He might get a surprise. He didn't. We get another flashback to Tom Twyford telling us about the best locks in the world and how all the number two best lock in the world is being used right now to lock up Annie's door. So he cannot pick it. He will not be able to get out. So he decides to go around the hall. He's running down. He goes where? Into the kitchen next? Yep. In the kitchen, the door outside's also locked. Um, but on top of that, it's even worse smelling. And now there's candy involved. Um, the refrigerator was old but quiet. That's not important. I don't know why. That was just like the word refrigerator just really mm-hmm. stuck out to me while I was reading through it. It was perfume de Wilkes, a psychic odor of obsession. Good sentence. Clever. I like it a lot. Um, three doors in the room, two to the left, one straight ahead, between the refrigerator and the pantry alcove. He went to the left first. One was the kitchen closet. He knew before with the closets. Uh, the other one was the one Annie used to go out. And here was another police bar and two more Kriegs. Roydman stay out. Paul stays in. He imagined her laughing. And then he gets angry, swears, and starts hitting stuff. He starts crying. Um, he is very fr- And I understand that. Like, he thought he had the moment. He was like, I'm going to take advantage of her when he's, she's weak and emotional. And then... And I'm going to get out. And she was prepared for she it. She was ready for it. Here he is in the kitchen. It's gross. It's gross like the living room. It smells bad. There's nastiness everywhere. But... He knows that crying's not going to get him out of it. So he was checking out the windows. He, you know, but he knows that it's, it's just not. He said, what? And then a kamikaze dive out onto the back porch? Great idea. Maybe he could break his back. And that would take his mind off his legs for a while. <laughs> you know, he, uh, again, humor is a defense mechanism here. It's all he's really got is just it's, humor. I mean, right. it's the only thing he can really do to keep his, like, morale in, in any way alive. And now he's just trying to think, like, what can I do? And he's really starting to come to the conclusion, like, it really seems like the only way he's going to get out of this is uh, a me or her situation. Mm -hmm. And I think he's really starting to come to terms with that. For a moment, he considers simply lighting the place on fire. But he began to reject the idea as the most ridiculous yet. 
and then saw something which made him reconsider it briefly. In here was yet another door, and this one had no locks on it. He opened it and saw a set of steep, rickety stairs pitching and yawing their way into the cellar. He remembers the rats. I think that's really important, too, because it's like, obviously, like, rats have a little bit of a significance for Paul. Mm -hmm. Also, though, if you watch a woman stare you in the eyes with a half-dead rat in her hands, and then she squeezes it to death and watches the blood pour out while making direct eye contact with you the whole time, probably not going to be a fan of rats anymore. Probably not. You know, and let's be real. He's from New York City. He's probably not a fan of rats anyway. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> if you had to watch a rat every day carry around pieces of pizza, I'd be right. disgusted by them as yep. well. Grossed out. I'll never give up. Do you hear me? Never. Oh, no, the voice of the cynic whispered sardonically. Well, we'll see, won't we? Yes, they would see. I think it's another like little telling like thing. Like he's really trying to show the difference. I think between Annie and Paul mentally. Mm-hmm. Annie's little voice wins. Paul's little voice does not. Does not. Does not. Win. And I think that that's like, you know, honestly, it's the telltale sign of mental like health, yes. like and deterioration is how much you let your little voice win. Um, and I think it's really like that's that chapter break too. Like it's a scene change. Mm-hmm. It's like this is the it's the okay. end of this scene because Paul wins. Paul wins. Not and we the need little voice like in his head. there's no more power shifts. There's no more chasing. It's done. End scene. And I think that's it's a really good way that it's done. So yeah. So now that he's decided that he's gonna win, he's not gonna give up. Now it's about the food. That's what he came out here for in the first place. Yeah. He knew. He knew in the back of his mind he had to know that there was no way that Annie was going to leave and leave him a way to get out. There was no way. So, food it is. He says it looks more like a survivalist bomb shelter than a pantry. Some of this hoarding was a simple nod to the realities of her situation. She was a woman alone living in the high country where a person must reasonably expect to spend a certain period, maybe only a day or two, but sometimes as long as a week or two, cut off from the rest of the world. So he's in luck because there's a lot of food. A lot of sardines and raisins and deviled ham and uh, mini snacks. I don't know if we're really saying this is food. It feels like she already ate all the good stuff. Oh, but he finds the pile of Slim Jims, and I feel like that's, like, the most important thing. And, I mean, it really feels like... I wonder if she... I feel like the most difficult thing about this would be, as someone that also has a tendency to eat their feelings, when I want to eat my feelings, I go and get a pizza, or I go out to fast food or something. So she, well, she's never able to do that because she lives so high up in the mountains. And so far away from everything. So does she just have to, like, buy months in advance of, like, snacks for when she's depressed? Like, because she knows, like, I'm going to fall into this habit at some point. I'm going to want these Oreos. I should stock them in my pantry. Right. Absolutely. But then also at the same time, it's like she's almost, like, perpetuating and let it go in. So it's like she has all these things and... I don't know. It's, it's interesting. There. You know, that comfort yeah. food is there. Because and she, she has to it. bring it up to the mountains. She like, she's to, choosing she actively to absolutely. always have that comfort with her, too. She is. Oh, sorry. I was just thinking about that. And uh, it started off more as, like, a funny little thought. And now it's more of, like, a really interesting, like, thing to just think about how she is... She's enabling herself. She absolutely is enabling she's, herself. She's refusing social assistance. She's not talking to people. She's being mean to those around her. She's pushing them away, literally. She's even pushing animals away from her 
And then she's, like, isolating herself. And, I mean, she's trying. The only thing that she can really think to do is to take the person that she has with him and isolate him and manipulate him into maybe liking her. Maybe. Maybe. She's trying hard. So, Paul's hurting, but instead of going back to the bedroom with his little food cachet now, he decides to go back and check out her memory book. And this is when things get really real. This is all of the foreshadowing we've been talking all about for four episodes now. All Woo! the the it's all really real. Now he knows. We're about to find out a lot about Annie. I think this is what one, two, three, four, five, six. I think this is seven, probably eight, the longest chapter nine, in the ten. Book. 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 16, pages. 17. I 18 in my yeah. little paperback, too. Yeah. So, like, this oof. is absolutely the longest chapter. And I'm pretty well, it's sure the it's most the longest important chapter, chapter in the whole too. book. And it is absolutely where we learn everything about everything. Okay, so he opens the Memory Lane book, and the very first page is the Wilkes Berryman. Just, I want to really just say, like, we're on chapter yeah. 18, 18 in part two. And this is, I would say, like, it's almost like. If we look at stories as like a pyramid or as a circle, however you like to look at your story structures, you know, we're, we're at the top of the pyramid now. We are absolutely. We're about to start going down. Um, or we're at the very bottom of the circle and we're about to go start going up, whichever, you know, story structures you enjoy. And like, it's like he's been talking about this Sherizade thing like a lot. And we're about to find out in a little bit there's this like theory, like not really a theory, there's this like thing that Sherizade talks about is like the gotta. Like, you gotta keep going. And this is the moment where Steven is like, all right, are you ready for the book now? So here we are. We've got the gotta. So here we are. We got the gotta. And I think that that's the thing he's been setting up is now it's like, you're ready for a story. Like, you've been wondering about this woman, I'm sure, because, like, she's been an enigma. And now here's everything spelled out because she's also a little bit serial killer-ish. You know, and by serial killerish, we mean she kills people and keeps a scrapbook about a it. scrapbook about the murders. <laughs> Let's you know, and in case you're not Woo! familiar with the the uh, trope, serial killers keep trophies. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Just so you know, it's pretty much standard. Consistent in across the serial killer spectrum. Serial killer war, you could say. Keep trophies of mm-hmm. some kind or another. And we just found the mother load. Oh, yeah. Um, no wonder it's called Memory Lane. Memory Lane. This has my favorite sentence in the book in here somewhere, too. Um, so we, we start out with uh, her mom and dad's wedding announcement. Perfectly normal, right? Mm-hmm. Then we get her brother's birth announcement, Paul Wilkes. Oh, real quick, though. I just want to talk about how this has to be the most impulsive decision that Paul does. Oh, yeah. Like, because there's no thought process behind it. He's just like, he's got his food. He's just like content. He's like, all right, I'm going to go back to my room. And he just sees the book and he's like, ah, fuck. Like, I got to check this he's out. Like, he's I like, gotta I got to forget it. On. Like, why not? Why not? And he opens it. And it's going to be the biggest mistake he makes in the entire thing. Like, this is sadly, foreshadowingly, mm-hmm. without spoiling anything, this is the moment he really messed up. Yep. And we'll find out why. Because Annie. Honestly, Annie's little trick employee here is very clever. It is very clever. And I clever. did not and see it come uh... in, and she really got me when I found it out. Um, if you don't know the book, I'd love to see if you have any like ideas or like suggestions or like guesses about what you think it could be. Because I personally, like, if somebody had asked me this, I would have been like, "Oh, there's something happening. Like, what? Like, let me read read this part." But 
It's clever. It is clever. So, you know, the first few pages, perfectly normal memory book things. Mom and dad's wedding announcement, brother's wedding announcement, brother's name is Paul. Kind of creepy. Okay. Must have been the one that she saw all the chapter plays with. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Page three, birth announcement, Annie Marie Wilkes, April 1st, 1943, which made Annie just past her 44th birthday. The fact that she had been in, on born on, on April, April Fool's, Fool's Day, Day did not escape Paul. <laughs> he takes the little moment to just throw a jab in there at her. <laughs> right, Just right. like, huh, you were born on April Fool's Day. You're a yeah. joke to the world. Yeah. So the wind gusts, the rain tore against the house. Again, we have that Again, moment where like he's consciously aware of everything around him. Everything aware. Of him. Mm-hmm. But then he's not. His ta- pain and was temporarily, temporarily forgotten. forgotten. And then up to this moment, the only thing that's made him forget about his pain is the book or fear. Yes. So now he's got like now he's literally like this fascination yeah. that has got him. Curiosity. Just, he's got the gotta. He's, he's got found the gotta. No, he's, he's found he's an interesting book. He's got to know what's going on. What's happening next? So uh, then there's a, a clipping about a apartment house fire. So. Three of the dead. Three of the dead were children. Paul, Frederick, and Allison Krenmitz. You remember how she talked about being forced to babysit the Krenmitz kids? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And how they were brats. Mm-hmm. They yeah. deserved what they got. And they deserved what they got. So we've got the Krenmitz kids. Okay, and then um, yeah, October twenty eighth, nineteen fifty four. So she's 11 years old. Mm. 11 years old. And, you know, it's sad, but okay, she's got that in her book. And then conveniently, the Wilkes family just isn't there the night of yeah, the fire. Just, wow. Mm. The entire family just got up. They had a whole a whole uh, water leak. And then the mom's even like, I'm really sad about the other woman and her children. That's That would be really sad if I lost my kids. Um. And then we get a little bit about how the fire was probably started from the police chief, um, which is interesting just because the poss- when asked about the possibility of arson, he said it's more likely that a wino crept into the basement, had a few drinks, and then accidentally started the fire with a cigarette. He probably ran instead of trying to put the fire out, and five people died. I hope we catch up with the bum. The police have several, and they are following up hard to fast about their leads. I can tell you that. And... She kept it for a reason. We already know immediately. Right. So it's interesting. And it's like, oh, man, maybe she's just fascinated with death. Or she's like, maybe she had a crush yeah, well, on these and kids it was, and she it hated them. It was her them. apartment building. So maybe that's why she kept it. <laughs> right. So we turn the page. This one's dated July 19th, 1957. Oh, hold on real quick. Because immediately Paul puts together all the stuff that we just put together, too. Where he, like, remembers, mm-hmm. like, what she said about the brats and the house and all those things. Mm-hmm. And she's like... Maybe she didn't even think it would work. Maybe she thought the kerosene would evaporate before the candle burned all the way down. He immediately has two or three different ways that she could have done this as an 11-year-old. Absolutely. He and does. so it's like he doesn't immediately. Can he's you like, imagine? Just the, immediately the, thinking an 11-year-old definitely burned down that house and killed five people. Right. And, like and no hesitation, no, hesita- no thought. He knows. He knows. He, he knows it. And it's, it's got to be like a chilling like thought immediately to like pick up Can this book. Can you imagine the mm. goose pimples that he's got now? Oh, he I mean, knows. Oh. I've got them now. Like, and it's like he knows it. <laughs> That she's a little murderer right so Ooh. the next page she's 13 now carl wilkes a lifelong bakersfield resident 
died shortly after being admitted to the hospital last night. He stumbled over a pile of loose clothing. Wilkes is survived by his wife, a son, and a daughter, Anne, 14. Yeah, 14 years old. So He felt stark and simple terror steal into him. Yeah, he said uh, he thought that Annie had pasted two copies of her father's obituary out of sentiment or by accident. He thought the latter more likely the possibility of the two. He knows that she gets forgetful when she gets down, Mm -hmm. so he thinks it's an accident. But then he felt a stark, simple terror steal into him. The neat handwriting below this clipping read, Los Angeles, California, January 29th, 1962. USC student dies in a freak fall. Two freak falls, same page. She's got a, she just likes freak falls. Yeah, She's not a yeah, murderer. Yeah. She just like accidents. Accidents happen all around her. It's she terrible. Likes to be, she's curious. Right. Yeah. So... Uh, she says he was lying dead on the stairs. It was the cat she tripped over. So also, it looks like Annie killed this his roommate's cat, put the cat at the top of the stairs, and either the roommate tripped over the cat and fell down the stairs and died, or Annie pushed her down the stairs and then came up with the story about tripping over the cat. Yes. And then the only thing Paul has after reading this article, it's one word, it's one sentence long, and then it starts another paragraph. So this is his entire thought process, which I think is really cool about how Steve does this. And it's just Jesus. Next paragraph. And thought process. Like, there's nothing else he can comprehend in that moment. There's nothing Nothing else. It is just like, oh my, I'm I'm really not in a good situation. Not not good at all. Not good at all. Paul whispered it over and over. But I like how he doesn't just start saying Jesus, 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 Jesus in the like mm-hmm. in a dialogue sense. He says it, he does it over and over again. So we, now we just have this image of Paul with this book in his hand, just muttering to himself, Jesus, oh my God, Jesus, Jesus, right. oh my he God, knows. Jesus. Yeah. Right. It's oh yeah. You know, and then he's he's picturing how this all happened. What did she do? How did she make this happen? It. it it didn't matter because he knew. And immediately he's like, why would she do this? And then he's like, oh, actually, here's eight reasons in my head that I was like, she's, I called her because she was playing radio at night. I killed her because of the dumb name she gave the cat. I killed her because I got tired of seeing her soul kissing her boyfriend on the couch, him with his hand shoved up her, so far up her skirt. He looked like he was prospecting for gold. I killed her because I thought of her cheating. I think it's funny that he throws in that little joke there. Mm-hmm. Like, clever uh i killed her because she caught me cheating like the specifics don't matter do they i killed her because she was a cock duty brat and that was reason enough oh he knows her at this point yeah he's figured it out he's got annie's number i really think that this has just confirmed every suspicion he's had for the last 185 pages yep like and he's got you know i think that now he has figured out where he saw that purple dress mm -hmm. and i think that this moment is the moment where this became me just like reading this for the podcast and for us to talk about it and it became me reading because I wanted to find out what happened. Because you wanted to find out what happened Because I don't, like when we were reading it and like now I always mean like at this moment we still haven't watched Misery and we plan to do that and uh, if you're interested in seeing our reactions and what we think of the Misery movie based upon the book uh, or vice versa you can check that out at our Patreon. It's going to be one of the things that we're going to be giving out as exclusive content on our Patreon so make sure you head over there. But uh, I didn't remember how I don't remember how the movie ends. This is also the part where, you know, in the 10, 15 pages before this, when Annie comes in all covered in gross and junk, that that Otto texts me and says, 
man, I kind of feel bad for her. And I then, did feel bad for her in that and moment. Then, and then he, you know, founds the, he, he finds, finds this book. Bug. And he, like 20 minutes later, he's like, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I don't feel bad I for her. I don't feel bad for her anymore. This was that exact moment. This was that it was moment. was really fun for me. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> uh, only had to kill one roommate to do it. She got switched into another thing. And she was very, very clever. No one ever put those two freak falls together. First her father, then her roommates. Are you serious? Yeah, she's smart. Um, another page, a union leader obit identified as Hester Queenie Beaulefant. Um, looked like an old man, long illness. And this is where she becomes uh, a nurse. Yeah. And so what she's doing now is she's becoming a nurse and she's killing. Oh, yeah, because yeah, we skipped the, he turned the page and discovered another clipping from the Bakersfield Journal, the last as it turned out. Headline read, Miss Wilkes is a nursing school graduate. Hometown girl makes good. May 17, 1966. A startlingly pretty Annie Wilkes wearing a nurse's uniform and cap, smiling into the camera. I like this line. The wind gusted around the side of the house as if in answer. Mom's picture chatted, br- chattered briefly on the wall. So we know that he hears the wind and he doesn't, he stops looking at the book and turns his head in a real quick motion to watch the, like, so it's just like, I think that's a fun little picture to like immediately have in your head, like that Steve yeah. puts there. Just like that, like quick motion immediately back to the book. Yeah. Uh, so then we have a an obituary for Ernest Gagner, 79. In New Hampshire now. So she's moved. Yeah. Manchester, New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. Then, no exact cause of death given. After a long illness, the obit said, survived by his wife and 12 children. She killed him. That's what would have happened to good old Ernie. Why else would his obituary be here? This is Annie's book of dead, isn't it? Why, for God's sakes, why? With Annie Wilkes, that is a question with which has no sane answer, as you well know. Right. Is that... Steve, is that Paul answering his own question, or is that Steve taking a minute uh, narration break to tell us the reader? Like, I wish I could come up with some fun, like, really great, cool reason that, like, she does all this stuff, but mental illness is mental illness, and mental illness will mental illness, and that's what's happening. And there aren't a whole lot of cases of uh, documented female serial killers. So it's interesting here that... that almost all of them have axes, too. Yeah. Like, just saying. That, uh, But it's interesting that, that our serial killer here is a woman. So then Hester Queenie Bolifant. And uh, I think that if it was a man, there wouldn't be that sympathetic moment I had, though. No. I, 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 and I think that that's why it's a woman, is because if it was a man... Well, honestly... I think it might because of my own anxieties, like that really seem to bring out similar like binge eating things in me, and I would feel connected to that. But if up to that point it had been like a man just like treating this dude like so awfully and like having like no sense of like gentleness either, I think it would be probably a different reaction. I think it would be too. Yeah, I also think I we would know for sure it was a serial killer from the onset. Right. You wouldn't right. like have and, any like. And I think that the. The idea of a woman is supposed to be nurturing and caring, and so it's a weird juxtaposition of this 
image of a woman who is supposed to be nurturing and caring and Not motherly. Only, and like this matronly, like the way that he describes her in the beginning as this like bigger woman that just seemed like she could handle anything, like right. sturdy and resilient. Like that is like, I mean, that's the idea of mat- matronly. Like somebody that like you can turn to and take anything to and like know that they're going to be strong enough to help you in those moments. Um, and I think that Oh, uh, it's really incredible, too, that not only is there that aspect of it, but she becomes a nurse. Mm -hmm. The most, like, typical, uh, like, like, occupation. Yeah, people don't become nurses generally uh, because they don't care about people. Yes. It's a profession where you have to have the ability to care about somebody because your entire job is to take care of people. That's your entire job. You know, how is she doing this? How is she getting away with this? Because we are just a few pages in and she's got one, two, three, four, five. It's already five people. It's already five people in her care at one hospital. Um, Two more brief death notices in the Union Leader, one in September of 69 and one in early October. Then March of 70, new hospital staff announcement. So she's moved on. So she so moved she to got New what, Hampshire. Seven of them? Seven people. Seven people. And in then she's. Three years before she moved on. And she eventually is like, well, okay, I should probably get out of here now. Right. But is it. Did somebody say something? Did one of her supervisors start to put dots together? And they were like, wow, you seem to have a lot of patients die under your care. Like, Or does, does she just have this really well-honed sense of... People are getting suspicious. Yes. I need to move on I need now. to move on. It's time to move on. People are starting to look at me funny or something, something. Some kind of intuition tells her it's time it, to move it on. It would probably be one of those things where it's like people don't have enough information to make any accusations, so they just start watching her a little bit more carefully. Right. And it's like you can tell when somebody's starting to watch you a little bit more. Like, you can just really, you like, can, you can pick yeah. up on it. And so it's like, of course she sensed that. And she was like, okay, time to move on. Time right. to get out of here. And then she goes to Pennsylvania. Um, new hospital staff announced Annie was one of the RNs. Um, and it's a whole, like, they apparently hired a whole new staff for this hospital. Um, on the next page, Paul thought, I'm going to see a brief death notice for an elderly man or woman who expired at Riverview Hospital in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Correct. An old duffer who had died of that all-time favorite, long illness. Followed by an elderly man. Followed by a child of three who had fallen down a well, sustained grievous head injuries, and had been brought to Riverview in a coma. So, Annie's still cool to kill the kids yeah, after everything. After everything. But I think that, like, this one, it's it's like the rat. And I think that that's, like, the important part of it, too, is it's like she obviously saw this kid as, I need to put him out of his misery. Put him out of his I'm misery. I'm doing him a favor. Numbly, Paul continued to turn the pages. The pattern was inescapable. She got a ki- job, killed some people, and moved on. Suddenly an image came, one from a dream his conscious mind had already forgotten, which thus gave the Delphic resonance of deja vu. Love, I love, real, alliteration is one of my favorite things, like, that exists in the world of, like, liter, like, just in language. I love alliteration. I love the sound of, like, just things coming together and, like, re- repetition like that. 
So the Delphic resonance of deja vu. Mm-hmm. Like, the Ds are really great. But then it's those, like, soft vowel sounds of the Elphic resonance and deja vu. Like, it's yeah. just like, ooh, it just ooh, flows. ooh, ooh, and, It's and good. It's such a good sentence. I like that one. Ah, uh, sorry. little nerd no, moment. No, I, I get it. Uh, I, I like, yeah. I like words, too. <laughs> <laughs> words be words cool. Words are cool and stuff. Why say a lot, words? Uh, <laughs> when it struck him. Kremitz kids, but he knew that Annie and him knew old and sick, all of them had it old and sipped, except Miss Sinu. She must have been nothing but a vegetable when it came in. The kid had fa- and the kid that had fallen down the well. Annie had killed them because because they were rats in a trap, he whispered. Poor things. Poor, poor things. Um, we were at Poor Poor Things on one ninety two. Yeah, yeah. One, my not one ninety two. That's it. He says it here. Um, that was it. In Annie's view, all the people in the world were divided into three groups. Brats, poor, poor things, and Annie. Oof. Then she started moving westward, and then, like, at this point, he doesn't even tell us every single one. He just starts telling the cities. Mm -hmm. Harrisburg, to Pittsburgh, to Duluth, to Fargo. Um, So, I mean, pattern's the same. A welcome aboard. Paul guessed, and then two or three unremarkable deaths. Following these, the cycle would start again. So I think it's interesting, too, because it's obviously, like, she's starting to get unsatisfied with something because she's only doing, she goes from seven to two to three. Or she's not in a unit where the really sick people are, so she moves on to get to a place where she can... Oh, find, like, more sick people. Mm-hmm. Like, I feel like, yeah, she'd really want to be in, like, an ER or, like, an ICU or something, right. really. Like, yeah. Right. right. So, then, in 1978, to Denver. In each case, there was the same welcome aboard article with Annie's name. Until Denver, that was. Then the pattern broke wide open. Beside her, holding her hand in his, was a man named Ralph Duggan. Duggan was a physical therapist. Duggan Wilkes nuptials, the clipping was headed. So So now we know that the widow thing the is probably is most likely true. Yeah. Like she probably murdered this. She did man. get married. Uh he's got a single bar mustache, which is important, uh, just for me to tell everyone. Uh it's not important in any other aspect of the story. Um make that <laughs> Ralph Dugan should have checked his horoscope. Whoops. Make that horror scope. Oh, Steve, why are you becoming more and more my favorite? That's a 10 out of 10 joke. That's peak. <laughs> That's peak comedy. Um, I didn't realize we were reading a joke book. But he was wrong. The next clipping was a new arrivals from the Nederland newspaper. Not, all, uh, not a small town west of Boulder. Not all that far from here, Paul judged. Mr. and Mrs. Ralph Dugan are both in the new picture here. And then Ralph's, uh, Paul's head snaps up. Was that a car coming? No. Ellipses. 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 Just the wind. Surely the wind. He looked back down at Annie's book. He's so engrossed. And I think that's interesting, too, because there's not a lot of... The only other things that's really been this much of an escape room have been drugs and the book. And the book. So it's like, we're just seeing, like, this... How strong his addictive personality is. When he finds something he likes, he's going to latch. And he's going to do it all the way through. Right. Like, he's going to finish it. Um, but he was wrong. Uh, Ralph Dugan had gone back to helping the lame, the halt, 
than the blind in Arapaho Kanehancho. Presumably, Annie went back to the time-honored nurse's job of giving aid to comfort the grievously wounded. Now, the killing starts, he thought, but he was wrong. Instead of an obit, the next show clipping showed a Xerox of a realtor's one-sheet. Earnest money paid. Papers passed March 18th, 1979. So they just bought a little house together. So, is this a book of things that have made her feel happy? Is this a book of things that she finds as like important markers in her life? Or are these things that have brought her madness, anger, and sadness? Yeah. And I think that that's why Steve puts them in the book, like here for us to know, is because these are the things that are affecting Annie in the current moment. And, and what's striking to me is that she doesn't put the good things in one book and the secret bad things in another book. It's all in one book. So she wants to remember all of them at the same time. She wants to remember all of them at the same time. It's all in the same place. And then uh, something sure has changed. There's no obituary. Since killing Laura Rothberg in 1978, she had stopped killing around the time, same time she met Ralph. That was then and this is now. Now the pressure is starting to build up again. So through the clippings, he can even feel that she's starting to lose steam in this relationship. She's starting to lose the limerets, the idea that, like, this is perf- this is uh, forever. Right. Um, Wedded bliss. And then he turned the page and blinked. Slashed into the bottom of the page was August 43rd, 1880. F.U. It was the divorces granted column from the Nederland paper, but it was turned over to make sure that Annie and Ralph were a part of it. She had pasted it in upside down. I think that's interesting. She pasted it in upside down. It makes me think that like he's telling us he pasted it in upside down because she doesn't understand it in her life. Right. It doesn't make sense it in her life. It doesn't in fit in. Because somebody else made a decision and made a choice. Made a decision and a choice. That she had no control had over. No control over. Uh, there they were. Ralph and Ann Dugan. Grounds. Mental cruelty. So it seems like maybe they hadn't moved in yet. Like, they didn't live together. And I mean, in the 80s, it's not like, you know... I mean, and I'm thinking that they probably had, but, you know, they were out in the... Now they've got this house out in the middle of nowhere. Because I feel like it's implied that it's this house. They live together. They work together. They probably ride back and forth together. Oh, yeah. So they're together 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Mental cruelty. And And, uh, then Paul has this one little connecting thought. Paul says, maybe he saw the dead cat on the stairs. Yeah. You know, and I think it's a fun little take on the, like, maybe he saw the writing on the wall. like Right. And and he also points out that, you know, it's Ralph from Anne. He filed for divorce. He divorced her. You know, the American custom, right? No one talks about it much, but it's there. Men propose in the moonlight. Women file in court. Next page. Mm-hmm. New Arrivals article. This one from the Boulder, Colorado camera. That's the name of it. And we have Annie at a new hospital in Boulder. That was where Annie had really gone crazy. May 10th, long illness. May 14th, long illness. May 23rd, long illness. June 9th, short illness. June 15th, short. June 16th, long. Short, long, long, short, long, long, short. He stops mentioning dates. It's just that many articles and obituaries in a row over mm-hmm. and over again. Christ, how many did she kill, he thinks. 
Finally stumbled. In 1982, the uh, Annie had finally stumbled. The clipping from the January 14th camera showed her blank, stone-like face rendered in newsprint dots below a headline which read, New Head Maternity Ward Nurse Named. On January 29th, the nursery deaths had begun. So we went from long illness, short illness, mercy killings to people who, of people who may or may not recover from their things. And so, you know, it was always this mercy thing. Mm -hmm. It was putting them out of their misery. Now. Their misery. Uh, uh, (laughs) Now it's babies. She has completely gone off the rails. She waits 15 days after getting this new job. I just like did the math too. Annie had chronicled the whole story in her meticulous way. If the people after your hide had found this book, Annie, you would have been in jail or some asylum until the end of time. The first two infant deaths had had not aroused suspicion. By mid-March, there had been five nursery deaths in the Boulder Hospital. Okay, now, if you're not following the math here, that is an average of almost one a week. Dang. That's so many dead babies. Yeah. And, you know, these people who were ill and and sick and old and and feeble or whatever, not going to recover, they probably didn't draw quite as much attention as these newborns. Think about it. It makes me... If she's thinking about... I'm really trying to justify her poor, poor, like, birdie thing, right? So it makes me think, like, yes, these are babies, but she's jilted, heartbroken, She's alone. She's scared that people are going to hurt her again like this. Mm-hmm. And she sees these innocent, pure little babies that have no idea of the pain and heartbreak that is the only thing that they truly have to wait for in life. Right. And she's just like, I'm just going to I'm gonna put you out of your misery right now before you have to go through all of this pain because I'm a nice person and you're not going to like it. I'm telling you that because I've already done it, baby. Mm-hmm. And then she's like... All right, baby. You're welcome. And it doesn't tell us, you know. But you know she's saying you're welcome after every time she kills a baby. Right. You know she is. And and were these babies of single moms or were these babies of, you know, I mean, obviously it doesn't matter she's killing babies. But, Mm -hmm. you know, is she looking at their external situation that they have no control over and going, you'll be better off dead? Oh, creepy. On March 24th, the camera named the probable culprit as Tainted Formula. On April 2, or another da- baby had died in April, 2 in May. Then, from the front page of the June 1st Denver Post. So, there's a full-blown investigation into the baby deaths. They're looking into babies dying, and she's still like, I'm smarter than you. I'm going to mm-hmm. get a couple of them. <laughs> right. And then Oof. the very next the hard headline that she has in her book, Head Maternity Nurse Questioned on Infant Deaths. No charges made as yet, Sheriff's Office Spokeswoman says. Mm-hmm. And then we have the whole article, and it's about Annie being questioned. Um, and there was... Okay, things are a bit more serious than that. And, uh, asked if Wilkes had been charged with any crimes. Uh, Mr. Kinsolving replied, no, not as yet. I think Kinsolving is a really fun, like, real name, too, because <laughs> right, it's a guy yeah. solving the murders of yeah. the kin of people. Like, <laughs> that's good, Steve. Fun. <laughs> Just a fun little thing he put in there. Um rehashed a lot of Annie's career company photograph fantasized Annie in custody dear god Annie in custody the idol not falling but teetering teetering Wilkes released mum on interrogation 
Then, instead of new arrivals, uh, a headline from the Rocky Mountain News front page, July 2nd, 1982. So this is the same year, one month after the Denver Post where she'd been questioned. Then Mm -hmm. she gets arrested. She gets questioned. Um, Then she goes three more infant deaths in Boulder Hospital. Yeah. So after the investigation, instead of moving on, like she has done all the other times, she just went back to work. Mm-hmm. And back to work in all the senses. Back to work at the same hospital, same unit. They let her go back to the same job. She was still in charge, She too. was still in charge. Back in the nursery, three more deaths. So here we are, July 19th. Now this is six months after she started the job. And there have been... What? Three, then there's one in April, two in May, at least 12. Yeah. Anyway, a whole lot. I like the baby's name is Girl Christopher. Right. Well, <laughs> The murder I mean, of Girl Christopher. Here's the thing, and this is not something you would know. When a baby is born until the official birth certificate is filled out, that's what they put on the... the a name card in the So you're telling nursery. me this baby didn't even have a first name? The, like not Christopher been, is probably the last Christopher name? Christopher is probably the last name. Oh, no. Yeah. Like, oh, like this, no. this mom hadn't even had a chance to tell the nurses what the baby's name was yet. Like when, when a baby is born, it says baby girl, baby boy. The article noted that some of Annie's alleged victims had even lived long enough to be given real names. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. So it's like I read that connection, but like it just didn't hit me that like these. So like not only is she killing newborn, she's killing newborn babies whose parents haven't even had a chance to give the hospital staff their name yet. There seemed to be a consensus hanging was too good for Annie. One correspondent dubbed her the Dragon Lady. Right. All thoughts aside, it's one of the dopest nicknames I've ever heard. <laughs> right. If, like, I had a friend who was called the Dragon Lady, for any other circumstances, it would be so cool. It would be a pretty dope nickname. These are not These are good not, circumstances. Not good circumstances. We have to find, like, just a real good reason to start calling someone the Dragon Lady. For a good reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, they can breathe fire. So, yeah, so September of 1982, she's in Boulder. It's all over the paper. This is all over the news in the Boulder area. Mm-hmm. You know, is this when he was finishing the first Misery book, maybe? Not the first Misery book. Obviously not the first one, because she's reading one of them while she's sitting in jail. A Misery book? He's there? Is that how he knows this? He's, like, and, like, that's the thing, too, is we talked about how he had something in his head like he knew this right. image he saw this thing so it was like probably because he was in the area he saw because he, he was finishing a book he's just self-centered and he didn't care enough about the local news he was working on his news he like looked to go get a coffee at starbucks and saw the like newspaper and he was like oh that lady's she looks crazy right and then like went oh, about his she's day reading my book and went on went on about his day mm-hmm. um. um and then it was apparent that Annie's biggest mistake had been not stopping when people finally realized something was going on. Because, see, they had the full investigation, and then for a second they said it was just formula. And they gave her an out. She right. had the opportunity to not get caught. Right. But she couldn't. But she couldn't. 
instead of stopping or moving on, she just kept right on with it her. It probably pattern. made her feel like she got away with it yeah. for a little bit there. She was like, oh, yeah. I tricked them. But then uh, it makes me wonder what was so strongly in her head that she changed everything about what she had been doing. Meaning like she She owned a house. She had, and that's what I was just about to say, she has permanence now. Mm -hmm. She can't just like up and leave her house. Like you have, she'd have to go through the whole process of selling it, finding someone to buy it, moving all of her things out of the mountains at that point. Mm -hmm. Like she probably has the animals at this point since she's been lonely. She's got a pig out there, like all these things and like, yeah, she put down roots. Mm-hmm. So now she's tied there. And she got a promotion. And she got a promotion. I mean, she's a head nurse, and that's woof. The district attorney had a hand mark on girl Christopher's face and throat, which corresponded to the size of Annie's hands, complete with the mark of her amethyst ring she wore on the fourth ring of her right hand. The DA also had a pattern of observed entries and exits to the nursery, which roughly corresponded to the infant death. But Annie was the head maternity nurse, after all, so she was always going in and out. Defense was able to show dozens of other occasions where Annie had entered the ward and nothing untoward had happened. I like that little uh, internal alliteration there. Like, that's fun. Um, The prosecution wove its net as well as it could, but the handprint with the mark of the ring was really the most damning piece of evidence that they could come up with. The fact that the state of Colorado Colorado had elected to bring Annie to trial at all, given such a slight chance of conviction on the evidence, left Paul with one assumption and one certainty. The assumption was that Annie had said things during her original interrogation which were extremely suggestive, perhaps even damning. Usually we hear this story when somebody's gotten money. You know, they've got a really good attorney. She's got a really good attorney. Oh yeah, she has to. Excerpts from the clippings pasted in her book contained some real gems. Did they make me feel sad? Of course they made me feel sad, considering the world we live in. She felt bad for the babies. She had to kill them. Yeah. I have nothing to do to be ashamed of. I'm never ashamed. What I do, that's final. I never look back on that type of thing. That's confidence. That's a level of confidence I aspire to have. But man. But not in this context. Not in this context. Did I attend the funerals of any of them? Of course not. I find funerals to be very grim and depressing. Also, I don't believe babies are ensold. (laughs) <laughs> you just babies think, aren't even people you yet you don't get your soul until you're three <laughs> right? once you're three you get your ensouling ceremony of course of course you know right no I never cried creepy and here here's probably the picture that he saw that made him remember her yep Annie sitting calmly in her holding cell reading Misery's Quest in Misery the caption below asked Not the dragon lady. Annie reads calmly as she waits for the verdict. That's probably, that is probably the clipping that he remembers seeing in the paper while he was drinking his coffee at the hotel. And then he has like this giant active imagination. So he just does, he sees a picture and he puts together the whole story for Mm -hmm. it. So that's why he has an entire scene in his head. Right, right. Uh, On December 16th, Banner leads, Banner headlines, Dragon Lady Innocent. I had very grave doubts as to her innocence, yes. Unfortunately, I had very reasonable doubts as to her guilt. I hope she will be tried again on one of the other counts. Perhaps the prosecution can make a stronger case on one of those. 
They all knew she did it, but nobody could prove it, so she slipped through their fingers. The next page was from the Sidewinder Gazette, November 19, 1984. Hikers had found the mutilated and partly dismembered remains of a young man in the eastern section of the Grider Wildlife Preserve. The following week's paper identified as Andrew Pomeroy. Police had theorized that Pomeroy might have been killed near Highway 9 and washed into the wildlife reserve during the spring runoff. The coroner's report said the wounds had been inflicted with an axe. Foreshadowing! Paul wondered, not quite idly, how far Grider Wildlife Preserve was from here. That is very important, you're right. Very, very important. He turns the page, he finds it, loses his breath. It wasn't quite an obituary, but close enough for government work, he said in a low, hoarse voice. Makes a joke about this moment yeah. that he sees it. <laughs> right. Listed below the divorce of a TV actress and above the death of a Midwestern steel potentate was this item, reported missing, Paul Sheldon, 42, novelist, best known for his series of romances about sexy, bubble-headed, unsinkable misery Chastain by his agent, Bryce Bell. I think he's fine, Bell said, but I wish he'd get in touch and ease my mind. After his ex-wife's wishes, he'd get in touch and ease their bank accounts. The clipping was two weeks old. So They're now, not looking for him. So now he, he knows, knows. They're not looking for him. And he knows it's been nine weeks now and since he was reported missing. They're not looking for they're him. And they're not looking for him. That's terrifying. Because his his publicist, his, his uh, account, or... Uh, Agent, he's probably fine. He's hiding. <laughs> it's not a big deal. Yeah. Outside, the wind gusted more strongly than it had yet done, slapping cold rain against the house, and Paul shrank away from it, moaning and afraid, trying desperately hard to hold himself together and not burst into tears. Hey, everyone. It's Otto. Thank you for listening, and we're taking a quick break here just to talk about some of the feedback that we've gotten. We've gotten some really excellent feedback, and we just wanted to say thank you. Thank you for telling us what you think. Thank you for telling us how you feel, because it's the only thing that's going to make us excel and make us better. Thank you so much. If you have anything else to tell us, please do not hesitate to contact us at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. He's, this is the moment of resignation almost. That's why Annie hasn't been that concerned. She knows for a fact that she's kind of got a little bit of a clear coast right now. Right, because they're not really looking for him. They're not concerned. They're making jokes about it. Yeah, I wish he'd get in touch. You know, his ex-wife wanted him to pay his alimony, but you know, now he's probably fine. Yeah. So that's it. He closes the book, goes back to bed, eats a handful of pills... And get some sleep. And that's the end of the chapter. Yeah. We get so much in that chapter. It's such a... It's, it's it, the most important part of the book, obviously. Right. And I think that's... I think it's really fun, too, that uh, uh, we're sitting here dissecting the book inside of the book with Paul. Mm-hmm. It's And it's really fun, because that's kind of like the feel that Steve gives you when you read through it for the first time, is it's like you're reading this book with Paul. He's yes. taking his moments to like look over his shoulder at you, the reader, and say, like, this is what I think about this. What do you think? Yeah. And then look back at the book. 
Yeah, um, he is. And it really and gives you that sense that you're there with him in this moment, too. It like absolutely with, does. With all and of the senses that he's drawing out in these things, with the touch and this, what he's seeing and, like, how he's breathing and what he hears with the wind and, like, how cold he's starting to get and, like, all these things. All the things that he's feeling and, and you know, still sitting there in that room smelling and, you know, but he has escaped into this nightmare. So... Um, yeah, I uh, I think the next like four chapters, if I remember, is just him thinking about all of this and like mm-hmm. like the implications and what it means and right. uh, what he's gonna have to do, um, because maybe you know what the answer is. Uh, what is it? Dead flat. Maybe that's okay because maybe you know what the answer is after all, don't you? Yes, of course he did. If he meant to get out of this, he would have to kill her. Yes, that's the answer. He answered with no quest- hesitation at all. Yes, I can. He closed his eyes. He slept. It is a half a page. And it is one of the most important parts. Because in that moment, he just decides, like, I'm going to murder her. Yeah, I know what I got to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And yes, I can do it. It's all good. I got this. He says, I'm going to win. Yep. And that is the moment he makes that decision. Um, So then now we get back into, like, everything else of the day. It's him and his... uh, in his, his room, routine. back in his routine, and alone. He can hear all the animals, and he starts to think about how, like, they've probably put up with this for this long. And then we get treated to the, can you? I don't think this is the first time he's brought it up, but he starts to really talk about it again. I don't know. Yeah, no, it's can you in real life was quite different, because he talks about it yeah. in, like, the first time when, right, he starts when he starts writing, writing. the book. Yeah. Um, and now he's really, like, Two pages later, he's immediately thinking about Misery Chastain and the novel he's working right. on. Yeah, he just found this the most traumatic book he's ever read in his life. And now he's back to, you know, his his grasp of the normal day to day. Write my book, do the thing, eat the food that I went and got, take mm. the pain pills, do the thing, just the routine. And then all he can hear from outside is just this pig squealing. Because it hasn't been fed or watered and it's stuck in its pen over and over again. But bossy number one abruptly fell silent. Paul wondered uneasily if perhaps the poor animal's under utter had burst, resulting in death by exsanguination. For a moment, his imagination so vivid. <laughs> and like the idea that a cow just dies from its utter exploding yeah. like Ugh, what are you thinking buddy <laughs> but you know i mean that's like a legitimate thing and now he's just casually out and about in the house yeah. like he's like he's he like, rolled back into the whatever. kitchen opened Go drawers on. until he found knives takes a knife on the uh, he put the knife on the night table hoisted himself into bed then slid it under the mattress when annie came back he was going to ask her for a nice cold glass of water and when she leaned over to give it to him he was going to plunge the knife into her throat nothing fancy paul closed his eyes until he felt the sting of the hypo sliding into his arm and woke to see her face leaning over his. He hadn't the slightest idea she was back. Mm -hmm. Wow. Be sure to like us on Facebook at First Time Through Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at First Time Through. You can even become one of our patrons at patreon.com slash first time through to get exclusive content and really fun communication. I can just cut that out, thankfully. Also, if you have any general concerns, questions, comments, or 
you have your own little piece of Stephen King trivia, please, please email it to us at firsttimethroughpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you have to say. First Time Through is produced by Empty Theater Productions. Editing by Otto Mullins. Music by Jason Rager. Art by Kurt Payne at Who Knew Art. References for this from Bloom's Modern Critical Views. Updated edition, Stephen King. Edited and with an introduction by Harold Bloom.